Welcome back, Wrestling Junkies. Tonight, we talk about our favorite matches that turn into real shoot fights. And no, it's not any that you may know or that you have heard of from a bald guy that slaps his head. Talking about you, Simon Miller. I am your host for this evening, Ernie, and you are listening to another amazing production from Under the Apron. Let's start this broadcast with some news. Former WWE Superstar trainer Bill DeMott, Hugh Morris, as you have known him in WCW, is calling on WWE to remove Tammy Sitch from the WWE Hall of Fame. DeMott tweeted the other day, When do we start holding people accountable before they kill themselves or someone else? When do we start as lawmakers and judges that we do not get to decide who should and shouldn't be punished? When do organizations speak up for everyone, not just influential cases? When? A press release sent out by the Carry On DeMott Foundation, I will be putting their website in the description for those that want to take a look at it, uh, which teaches the community, local and abroad, about the dangers of driving drunk, distracted, or impaired, says the WWE should remove a repeat DUI offender and now killer of an innocent man, Tamara Sonny Sitch, from his Hall of Fame. The press release also mentions Sitch recent arrest, and that her blood alcohol level was three times the legal limit. The DeMott family lost their daughter, Carrie on DeMott, to a drunk driver in 2016. Sonny fired back with a tweet of her own. She tweeted, I think Bill DeMott should be removed from the WWE Hall of Fame. Oh, that's right. He was never inducted. He was too busy sexually harassing female talent and degrading male talent as well. Yet, he is worried about a crime that has not even been proven in a court of law yet. Um, the, uh, man, kind of, alright, I mean, the worst of two evils, how do you go, how do you, you can't, I mean, I, I, on one hand, he's right, that if, you're not going to include someone in the Hall of Fame. You might as well take this person out. On the other hand, um, what she said about him. But um, not only that, Mark Henry has said uh, in a tweet also that he agrees with what DeMott said. So there's that also. In comic book movie news, Shad Gaspar, Muhammad Hassan's comic book picked up for Movie Project. A comic book co-created and co-written by the late Shad Gaspar has been picked up for development as a film. State Three Pictures has optioned the Assassin's and Son comic book for development as a movie, according to Deadline. The comic was created and written by former WWE superstars Gaspar and Mark Capani, known to fans as Muhammad Hassan. Yes, that Muhammad Hassan. Look him up. The comic tells the story of Donovan Braddock, a one-man killing unit who works with a team of covert assassins known as the Horsemen. Hmm. Okay. Horsemen, huh? Braddock finds love and makes a family of his own and attempts to leave the life of violence behind. But he finds that his old life still torments him with his wife's murder in front of him and his young son. That looks rather suspiciously... Ah, okay. Now with nothing to live for, Braddock and his son are sent on an epic journey of revenge and consequence. That's weird. Okay. 
The Assassin's Son comic was illustrated by Eater Messiahs and published by Scout Comics and Entertainment, who will also produce the feature film adaptation alongside State Street. It was noted that Gaspard and Capani teamed up to write the comic after retiring from pro wrestling. Gaspard passed away shortly before the first issue was published. And now I really want to watch it. Just because two wrestlers created it. It's the same as me going to a comic book store and picking up the comic that uh, CM Punk helped in writing. I know he did one, right? Or any uh, wrestlers and movies. Uh, Dan Hanfield of Scout Comics recalled meeting Gaspar at San Diego Comic-Con in 2019 and said he's happy Gaspar's legacy can live on through this new partnership. We met Shad at San Diego Comic-Con in 2019. He was known for his brawn in the world of wrestling, but we were taken by what his humor, intelligence, and creative genius. Hanfield said, We were blown away by his and Mark's comic, and we're proud to bring it to the world. We are happy that his legacy has a chance to live on through his partnership with State Street. State Street creative executive Lawrence Mott added, well, We are thrilled at the opportunity to bring Shad and Mark's comic to life. What excites us creatively is the balance of hard-hitting action and emotional themes presented in the source material. The issue was initially scheduled for an April 2020 release, but Shad's passing and COVID-19 delays pushed the date back until November of that year. There was one variant release of just a thousand copies, with proceeds going to the Gaspard family. Gopani currently works as the principal of Fulton Junior High School in Fulton, New York. Wow, he got promoted. Last I heard, he was a, a high school... A, that he was a um, history teacher. Alright, good for him. Go Muhammad Hassan. After signing a WWE developmental deal in 2002, Kapani eventually found controversial success as the Hassan character until he was released in September of 2005. Yeah, we don't talk about that. And then we feel bad for him too because of that. But we still don't talk about that. He then announced his retirement, went back to college and got into education, staying away from pro wrestling until a brief indie run for the Dynasty promotion in 2018. He has said he will never wrestle again due to his career in education. Good job, man. Gaspard passed away at the age of 39 on May 17, 2020, after he and his 10-year-old son were among a group of swimmers who were swept away by a strong rip current while in the ocean at Venus Beach, California. First responders hit the water to rescue the swimmers, but Gaspard told them to save his son first, and they did, which saved his son's life. Shad was reportedly then hit by a large wave, and he went under. A search and rescue operation was then launched, but Shad's body washed ashore three days later. <sighs> Gaspard worked for WWE from 2002 to 2007, and then returned for another run that went from 2008 to 2010. He was posthumously honored with the Warrior Award at the WWE Hall of Fame induction ceremony last month. Gaspard continued to wrestle after his last run with WWE, working the Indies as a singles competitor and teaming up with the JTG to keep their crime time tag team going. Gaspard was also involved in other projects at the time of his passing, such as acting and stunt work. There's no word on yet when the Assassin's Son movie will begin production or when it might be released, but stay tuned as we will keep you updated and we will we will also keep you updated on this 
for some reason, Vince Russo is in the news. Uh, Vince Russo says he will reject a place in the WWE Hall of Fame if Vince McMahon ever selects him as an inductee. I doubt he will. But, okay. Just, and just, let's just humor it and let's say he does pick Russo. Let's see what happens. Russo worked as WWE's head writer when Raw dominated WWE Nitro and the television ratings in the late 1990s. The 61-year-old later worked as a writer on an on-screen talent and on-screen talent in WWE where he became a one-time world heavyweight champion. He also wrote television for his DNA Impact Wrestling. Yeah, he became a... Yeah, that one time that he became... He ruined the entire freaking company, let's face it. Ugh. I love this. Speaking to Pounding the Meats, Vinny Vegas. <laughs> it's a podcast. I love that. Is it a podcast? I don't know. Uh, I'm going to have to look at Pounding the Meat. Yeah, I'm just... Wow. Pounding the Meat, Vinny Vegas. Um, So he not only has Kevin Nash's old name, but he has Pounding the Meat as the name of a blog or a podcast. So we're going to have to go to Pounding the Meat real soon. So uh, Pounding the Meat is a YouTube video podcast. So you can watch it on YouTube. Um, link in the description of this podcast. Uh, speaking of Pounding the Meat, Vinny Vegas, the former writer, gave an abrupt response when asked about possibly joining the Hall of Fame. Absolutely not, Russo said. Alright, so here's how he really talks. Absolutely not, bro. The Hall of Fame is Vince's validation. Nobody's voting for this, bro. Fans aren't voting, bro. Hall of Famers aren't voting, bro. It's Vince's decision at the end of the day, bro. I, okay, I might have taken a little too much of the bros, but you get the picture. There are so many guys that should be in the Hall of Fame and aren't in the Hall of Fame because of heat with Vince, Ivan Koloff, King Kong Bundy. I can go on and on. And he has a point. Um, Russo also questioned why Steamboat Lombardi, better known as the Brooklyn Brawler, is not in the Hall of Fame. Which, if you heard our last episode on Young Rock, we mentioned that. Is he in the Hall of Fame? Is he not in the Hall of Fame? We don't know. Now that we know he's not in the Hall of Fame, why isn't he in the Hall of Fame? Michael has said that maybe you win for not being in the Hall of Fame. And he's right. The uh, Lombardi, Broken Brawler, is a winner for not being in the Hall of Fame. And now Vince Russo is one of those winners. So either if he goes in or not, doesn't really matter. He doesn't want it. Um, Brooklyn Brawler, Lombardi, performed as an in-ring competitor and worked in various backstage production roles for WWE between 1983 and 2016. If you remember what I said on the Young Rock episode... And actually, from the Young Rock episode itself, um, his accomplishments doesn't matter. He was a workhorse from 1983 to 2016, basically enhancement talent as well. I've never seen this guy win a match. He's been with Bobby Heenan. He's been by himself. He's been changing all kinds of gimmicks. At the end of the day, he, why isn't he in the Hall of Fame? Last year, Russo said receiving validation from McMahon was not a good enough reason to accept the Hall of Fame induction. He also doubted whether WWE would want to publicly acknowledge him ever again. 
I mean, the guy went to WCW in the 90s when they needed him the most. And, but, he kind of overkilled it over in WCW and made a lot, a lot of enemies. Which also, like, it helped Vince uh, McMahon. But going over there, I mean, he had his beef with Hogan. He freaking made um, an actor a world champion. What the hell was that? Everybody hated him for that. Uh, David Flair, the way he... Oh, it was bad. The Elaborating on his Hall of Fame stance, the wrestling veteran said he would only be interested in induction if the voting system changed. If it were different, if it were fan voting, if it were people that were already in the Hall of Fame voting, but coming down to whether or not you're on Vince McMahon's good side, I have zero interest in that, Russo added. And now that you're saying it like that, if the fans were to vote, oh dude, we'd have China, we'd have Sunny out, We'd have China in. We'd have a lot of people in. Um, who else? Like, for that to say, if they had a voting to in, that's fine. If they had a voting for out, it'd be a lot of people out by that time. Um, I know a few people that should be out. Uh, but, eh, you know, not going to say names. And a few people that should be in also. And you all know those names. I've said it before on the podcast on this show. A couple episodes before. This year's WWE Hall of Fame was headlined by WWE icon, The Undertaker, Chad Gaspar, the Starnet Brothers, Vader, and Queen Charmel. And finally, Kota Ibushi might be leaving New Japan Pro Wrestling real soon. Once hailed as the future ace of New Japan Pro Wrestling, the answer to longtime top babyface Hiroshi Tanahashi, a series of tweets from Kota Ibushi, the Sportster reports, seems to expose that the Coles and Star has fallen out with the company. If Ibushi is about to depart New Japan Pro Wrestling in such a harmonious circumstances, it will be a disappointed end to a journey that began with excitement and hope for his future with Japan's largest pro wrestling promotion. Uh, Kota Ibushi's pro career began with dramatic T- Dream Team, DDT, in 20, 2004. He rose quickly in the company, becoming popular in the company known for his unconventional approach to pro wrestling, with comedy skits and a personable and intimate approach to interactions with their fan base. DDT was and remains the wacky, inclusive, wild child alternative to mainstream Japanese puro risk promotions like NOAH, AJPW, and NJPW. Ibushi's fortunes changed in 2006 when he was challenged by a Canadian wrestler who had been once been a World Wrestling Entertainment training prospect, Kenny Omega. DDT brought Omega to battle Ibushi and the two made electrifying opponents who shared a daredevil approach to high-flying spots and fast-paced knee strikes. Omega and Ibushi began to tag together as the Golden Lovers. Those were the days, man. If you don't know about the Golden Lovers, look it up. Go to YouTube, type in Golden Lovers, Omega and Ibushi. You are about to get the biggest bromance in all of NJPW. Right there. Okay. The two began making appearances for NJPW. They attained the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Championship one time against Apollo 55. Before the tag team disbanded, Andy Bushi began to compete in the Junior Heavyweight cha- Division, attaining the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Championship for the very first time. 
He later began competing as a heavyweight. After departing NJPW in 2016, Ibushi became a freelancer. He made appearances for various promotions and took part in World Wrestling Entertainment's Cruiserweight Classic. I remember that. He returned to... I uh, remember that because I saw that. I saw those matches. Unfortunately, he lost. They don't know what to do. They didn't know what to do with him. He would... Look up Ibushi and WWE's Cruiserweight Classics. Eh. It is the most awesome matches ever, man. So he returned to NJPW as a freelance performer, wrestling under the guise of an anime character, Tiger Mask W, in a promotion for an anime produced by NJPW's parent company, Bushi Road. Ibushi later figured prominently in the Bullet Club Civil War angle, Cody Rhodes flaunted aggression towards Ibushi as a way to emotionally manipulate Bullet Club leader and Ibushi's former tag team partner, Kenny Omega. Omega's hidden loyalty to Ibushi was exposed by Rhodes' attacks, and the two reunited as the Golden Lovers. Bromance, told you. Alongside Omega's ally, the Young Bucks, Ibushi and Omega formed a stable, the Golden Elite. Yeah. It, elite just happens to be all over the place. The Young Bucks and Omega eventually departed in JPW to form all of the wrestling. And you know that story. The next phase of Ibushi's career was meant to be a golden age for him and NJPW. Amid speculation that he would follow Omega to AEW, Ibushi committed to NJPW full-time. He achieved the IWGP Intercontinental Championship in 2019 and won the 2019 G1 Climax Tournament. I saw that. I loved it. In 2020, in a move pointing to Ibushi as the anointed future ace of NJPW, he won the IWGP Tag Team Championship alongside Tanahashi as the team Golden Ace in 2020. In 2021, Ibushi won the Intercontinental and Heavyweight titles from Tetsuya Naito at NJPW's 49th anniversary show. He later unified the titles into the inaugural NJPW World Heavyweight Championship. This move proved to be the downfall of what should have been a dominant babyface run for Ibushi. The new title proved to be unpopular to those who held great reverence for the old WGP heavyweight title. Although the title still exists, now held by, now held by Katsushika Okada, the lack of enthusiasm for his creation dimmed Ibushi's star. While, comparing in the G1 while competing in the G1 Climax in October 21, Ibushi suffered a shoulder injury. As of April 2022, his return was speculated to be forthcoming as he was said to be about 70 to 80% recovered from the injury. Between a lengthy injury and what now appears to be backstage conflict, Ibushi has, a rock, has had a rocky journey with NJPW since permanently committing himself to the promotion and placing himself fully in his hands for a role as top babyface. While he has achieved dazzling heights of success, his future with the company is not certain. At his best, Ibushi is an exciting performer who takes dazzling risks which endear him to the crowd. He has a long, if sporadic, history with NJPW. If he truly is departing, fans will surely follow wherever Ibushi lands next. A-E-W. And that's when Kenny Omega join, returns and joins. And there's your fourth member of that team. The Young Bucks and Kenny Omega and Ibushi. And then you have, what is it, Undisputed uh, Elite? Um, 
Adam Cole, Red Dragon, Kyle O'Reilly, and Bobby Fish. And, of course, the guys who's going to join in later on as soon as he gets his shit together on NXT, Roderick Strong. That's the match that's going to happen. And you, you heard it here first. On May 11th or May 12th, 2022, that's going to be the match of the year in AEW. Guaranteed. Alright, I'm going to take a little break and be right back with the matches that turn into shoot fights. So, I'll see you then. Welcome back to the show. I know we have a lot of support from non-wrestling fans because we keep sharing it to friends who share it with their friends. And they share it with their friends. And some of those friends will listen just to support it. But I do believe you can learn something new on this broadcast. For example, a real fight in wrestling is considered a shoot fight. Did you know that? Hey, you learn something new every day, right? Alright. It is described as any unplanned, unscripted, or real-life occurrence within a wrestling event. It is a carny term shortened from straight shooting, which originally referred to a gun in carnival targeting shooting game that did not have its sights fixed Terminology such as this reflects the professional wrestling industry's route and traveling carnivals. This term has come to mean a legit attack or fight in professional wrestling, and its meaning has broadened to include unscripted events in general. The opposite of a shoot is a work. With professional wrestling's history of shooters and hookers, wrestlers with elite grappling skills, <laughs> don't get your mind out of those gutters, and the recent rise of a shoot-style wrestling and mixed martial arts. The term can also be related to shooting for a takedown. An example of shoot fighting happened on November 4th, 2004 episode of SmackDown, taped in St. Louis, Missouri, during an unscripted segment of Tough Enough. Kurt Angle, a former American amateur wrestler and 1996 Olympic gold medalist, challenged the finalists to a squat thrust competition. Some of you already know where this is going. The others are just about to like, oh wow, that's crazy. Or some of you forgot, I guess. So, I'm going to tell it again. Chris Naraki won the competition, and the prize Naraki won was a match against Angle. Angle quickly took Naraki down with a guillotine choke, but Naraki managed to make it to the ropes, forcing Angle to break the hold. Angle then took Naraki down with a double leg takedown, breaking his ribs. Angle locked another guillotine choke on Naraki, pinning him in the process. After Angle defeated Naraki, Angle challenged the other finalist, Daniel Pewter, an American professional mixed martial artist, accepted Angle's challenge. See, we already knew he was an MMA fighter. Angle knew that. Angle, by going into a Naraki like that, is just a competition. Nah, he wasn't supposed to get hurt. It was just supposed to be a competition. And back in the day, it was just a competition between them. The tough enough kids. But not get beat up. They didn't sign up for that. They didn't sign up to get beat. To get hurt like that. But hey. He did. Naraki did. Daniel Pewter said, alright. Fuck around and find out. Do that to me. Let's see what happens. So, Angle and Pewter wrestled for position. Which... Angle taking Pewter down. However, in the process, Pewter locked Angle in a Kimura lock, which means he, like, had him, uh, his arm just wrenched in. 
Uh, think of it as Ronda Rousey doing her finisher move in MMA. Like wrenching it in. Or something like that. With Pewter on his back and Angle's arm locked in the Kimura, Angle pushed part Pewter's shoulder down. Pinning him and one of two referees in the ring, Jim Corderas, quickly counted three to end the bout. Despite the fact that Peter's shoulders were not fully down on the mat, bridging up at two, Peter later claimed he would have snapped Angle's arm on national television if Corderas had not ended the match. Yeah, see? Um, don't fuck with people like that. That's what happened. And then, to top it all off, Peter got in trouble for it. Because he defended himself. And you guys expected them to just lay down and not do anything about it. But Peter decided, hey, you broke his ribs. I don't want you to do that to me. So I'm going to break your rib, your harm. So he did that. Uh, he did that when? Doesn't say. In November. Um, Peter wins the, the whole competition show. And later in January of... The following year, uh, he is put in the Royal Rumble, goes into it, and is faced with three of the hardest mothers, mothers, <laughs> three of the hardest guys in professional wrestling, Hardcore Holly, uh, Eddie Guerrero, and I think uh, Chris Benoit was there. I don't recall because they probably might have deleted that one too. But as soon as he got in there, as soon as he saw all three of them, they cornered him in the corner of turnbuckle. And the slaps just went to town. He got... That was a shoot right there. That was a real fight. Those guys meant business. And they made sure that Angle, you know, they basically got received for Angle. Shoots may also involve outside the wrestling business. In 1984, while filming a 2020 segment on professional wrestling, reporter John Stossel remarked to wrestler David Dr. D. Schultz that wrestling was fake. And that's where he fucked up. Yeah, see? You do not call wrestling fake. Call it entertainment. You can call it a little... Thing, you can call it whatever you want to fucking call it. You do not call wrestling fake. You do not call it in front of wrestlers fake. They will show you what's fake about it. Um, they will teach you. They will, um, how do you say? They will make you learn things. This is a teachable moment for you. If you ever called wrestling fake, go apologize. Go apologize now. Um, uh, he yelled, you think this is fake? Schultz slapped him and knocked him to the ground twice. Stossel claimed that he still suffered from pain and buzzing in his ears eight weeks after the assault. Come on, really? No. I've taken one of those slaps before. It is No, I don't believe it. Schultz maintains that he attacked Stossel because WDF owner Viz McMahon wanted him to. Um, for those wondering, this was also on an episode of Dark Side of the Ring. Where we find out where Dr. D is at now. Okay, so now that we gave you a preview of what shoot means, let's also tell you the mattress that a shoot was involved in. 
These are matches that start out as regular matches, but then turn into shoots of real fights. Um, back in 2018, Vice TV had a show called The Wrestlers, where this punk rock Canadian by the name of Damien Abraham from the band Fucked Up went around the world to take a dive into the world of professional wrestling. On February 19, 2018, they aired Joshi Puro, Japan's finest wrestlers. In the description for the episode, it reads, Damien visits Tokyo to learn why Japan boasts the finest women's wrestling in the world and meets the upcoming generation of female wrestlers. So Damien went to talk to wrestlers in stardom and found the co-producer of former All Japan woman Rossi Ogawa, who told him of one particular match and story behind it. So now they didn't play it on live TV, but they showed pictures. And they just said, this and this happened to this person, and that was it. What they didn't think would happen is for everyone to search on YouTube for it, and it became one of those viral shares. One wrestling fan, one wrestling fan to another, would say, "Hey, you gotta see this." And the story goes like this: On February 22, 2015, act Yasukawa was scheduled to challenge Yoshiko for the World of Stardom Championship in the main event of a Korakuen Hollow Show. However, the match resulted in a contest when Yoshiko began to shoot on Yasukawa, legitimately assaulting her to the point that the match had to be stopped. Following the match, Yasukawa, with a bloody and badly swollen face, was rushed to a Tokyo hospital where she was diagnosed with fractured cheek nasal and orbital bones, which would require surgery. The incident received mainstream attention in Japan and became known as Seisan Machi, or otherwise known as Ghastly Match. On May 1st, Yasukawa was forced to vacate the Wonder Stardom Championship due to the fractures, uh, facial fractures inflicted on her earlier in the year. Yasukawa eventually returned to the ring on September 23, 2015. On December 1st, Yasukawa announced she would retire from professional wrestling in December 23rd. In her retirement match, Yasukawa and Koyo Kimura defeated Haruka Kato and Kairi Hojo. Afterwards, Yasukawa continued working for Stardom as a manager for the Oido Tai Stable. Asuka gets punched hard by Minoru Suzuki. Another match that was by way of YouTube and distributed online, the video was uploaded on September 30th, 2015, but the match happened on June 16, 2014, basically a year before she would come to the States and make her debut on NXT. The match in question, Kana, now known as Asuka, and Naomichi Marufuji versus Meiko Satomura and Minoru Suzuki. If you haven't heard about Suzuki yet, he faced Samoa Joe a few weeks ago. Basically, go to episode 23 of this show and skip over to an hour and 31 minutes and 40 seconds, and you will get the gist of what Suzuki is all about. He don't care one bit. And it's basically me, like... It's based and not be knowing about this, you know, because a long time ago, but I didn't realize it was the same person. It's basically me saying this man is crazy, and Samoa Joe, him and Samoa Joe went at it, like the best match on that night. Um, this match, however, the match starts. Kana steps up and wrestles Miko for at least a minute and a half. Kana hits one of her deadly stiff kicks to the back of Miko and then walks over to Suzuki to slap him across the face. Everyone in the crowd already knew that she crossed the line. 
About four minutes into the video, Suzuki has tagged in her partner, and we see an intergender match between Maiko and Namochi doing moves and rest holds. Now, Michi finally tags in Kana, and it's at least 7 minutes and 35 seconds into the video that we see Suzuki start to stiff punch and kick Kana. <sighs> yeah, it's gonna get... Um, if you like, you can skip ahead to a couple... 36, 40, 40 seconds. But if not, I understand if you don't want to listen to the rest of it. Okay, so for those that are still here. Um, at 9 minutes and 25 seconds into the video is when Suzuki starts working and shooting on Kana by wrenching the arm and having to uh, the appearance that he might break her. It's official. Everyone in the audience and possibly those watching the stream are aware that they are going hard on each other. But Suzuki was holding back, so they say. And it's not until you reach 19 minutes and 53 seconds in the match that shit is about to go down. Kana low blows Suzuki, slapped him, stiff kicked him, and a headbutt to the head, even going as far as spitting him in the face. At 20.17 is when you hear a loud thud when Suzuki headbutts Kana and knocks her out. After which he just continues to slap, kick, punch, and ragdoll her across the ring that even the referee got involved and tried to stop this match by jumping on Suzuki. Both tag team partners got in, a, in on it as well and tried to get him to stop. Uh, Suzuki continues, but this is where I will stop. If you want to see the rest and how it played out, I will have a link in the description, in the description on Spotify. But the match continued for at least another four minutes, with the referee trying to stop hard to stop Suzuki from leaving more damage on Kana's face, as well as doing a legit ankle lock and possibly spraying it. He finally hits a jumping pile driver and pins her to win the match. Now, the backstory to this match. Kana wanted the respect of her peers, and Suzuki is a friend and a childhood idol of hers. Still is. So she asked him to go hard on her. The story is that at first he didn't want to, and it took some convincing for him to do that headbutt to her. She basically had to kick him in the balls, slap, punch, spit, to do it, for him to do it. And he did. Uh, Kana booked the match, and she told Suzuki to go stiff. Unfortunately, the referee and the tag partners didn't know this was happening. And you got that reaction. Katsuyori Shibata versus Katsushika Okada, otherwise known as the headbutt heard around the world. I want to leave a video in the description, but at the same time, it it's hard. It I watched it and I said, "Shit, that wow!" So the headbutt heard around the world. Nobody wins with a headbutt, and unfortunately, Katsuyori Shibata had to learn that the hard way. Like a lot of Japanese wrestlers, Shibata was a hard-hitting madman who performed his signature headbutt multiple times without issue. <sighs> Despite the horrible sound a hit made each time. All of that changed on the night he faced Okada for the NJPW promotion. As the two men hit each other with real blow after real blow. Shibata leaned back and cracked Okada with a headbutt, busting open his own head and unknowingly giving himself a subdural hematoma in the process. So the video, he does it, and he just stands there looking unfazed, but looking down. 
that the referee had to check in on him and like see if can you see me? Do you, how many fingers do do you see right now? And Shibata just looks up, no reaction whatsoever, blood running down his face. As the minutes passed by and Shibata's brain bled, he slowly became paralyzed on his right side, losing the ability to walk. The match continued on as Shibata lost more motor functions and the ability to speak until Okada finally gave him one last huge hit and pinned him. It wasn't, it was a, okay, it was a huge hit, but still, like, he gave, he, like, felt bad for him. Like, okay, you gotta fucking go. You gotta, I gotta pin you, I gotta get you out of here, I gotta get you to the hospital, dude. <laughs> That's what Okada said. It's like, so he gave him, like, a pin, a, a blow to knock him out so he can, they can at least take him, because he wasn't gonna move anything. I don't think he knew where he was going. Uh, Shibata, being ever the showman, attempted to walk out of the arena after a loss, but collapsed before he could make it out. After multiple emergency surgeries and months of work to save his life, Shibata eventually learned to walk and speak again. He later appeared on an NJPW show to announce he was somehow still alive. Alright, and the last story of the day. Um, I'm going to end it here because there's going to be a part two to this. Michael's going to have a second parter. We're going to do more of these. Probably I'm going to let him do the uh, part two. As well as another stories. You know, more stories as they come available during the week. The last one is about the Acolytes or Bradshaw and Farouk. Or APA. Now known as APA. Um, the Acolytes delivered one of the most famous shoot beatdowns on an episode of WWE Sunday Night Heat on March 7, 1999. The future APA were supposed to get the win by putting their opponents, Public Enemy, through a table, but it appeared the new boys from ECW were not willing to play ball. <sighs> yeah, see, if you don't, if you're one of those people, don't be, please. You're, you're just going to get beat. And then they put them up against the APA, which is like boss level. <laughs> Seriously, they're boss levels. Um... That led to APA going into business for themselves once they hit the ring as they proceeded to deliver a vicious and real-life beating on their opponents. Oh, boy. Bradshaw with the clothesline from hell and Farouk who just stiffs all the time and he looks like he's about to kick your ass. Yeah, that's APA for you. Um, WWE Chief Bruce Pritchard... WWE Chief Bruce Pritchard explained... Well, they had a finish for the match where the Acolytes were going to put Public Enemy through a table. Right before they went out to the ring, the Public Enemy were going out to the ring first, and they told Ron and John, hey, we're going to take out the table spot at the end, which was the finish. Why would you tell them that? At the last minute, at the end of the freaking match, towards the end of the match, why, why would you tell them two of the most brutal freaking people that you're going to take something out in a type of match that they want. Why? That was your first mistake. Your second mistake is going out to that ring. You should have just left the arena, man. Ah, shoot. <sighs> so, they told him that. And they went out. So, John turned around to Ron. And Ron was like, what do you say? And he says, take out this table spot at the end. So they don't want to do the table spot. I guess not. 
Well, fuck. We'll just bring the tables to them. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> and they made sure they got the table spot in. Oh, yeah. It was one of those Sunday Night Heat um, matches. It wasn't... Was it on Sunday Night? It was one of those Sunday Night Heat matches. Because it was on Sunday Night Heat. I knew it. I was like, even reading it, it's like, yeah, I remember Sunday Night Heat. Um, <laughs> it was hilarious. I... I mean, they went out there. They saw they were going to have a regular old match. And then, bruh, Farouk just looks pissed off as all hell anyway. So he just, like, <sighs> does his finisher on one of them. Uh, Bradshaw is all laughing because he just he knows he's about to have some fun. They take out the table, and they powerbomb both of them through a table. It was hilarious. <laughs> Alright, so that's all for me for today. Uh, thank you for listening to the show and supporting us. You can find us all over sort of platforms. First, with the Nerdvana Network, or TNN for short, which is a conglomerate of podcasts that promote each other's common interests, so give them a follow as well. Check out the Linktree at linktree.com forward slash the Nerdvana Network for more information on that. Follow us on Twitter at apron underscore stories. Apron stories. You know, apron underscore sign and then stories. Follow me on Twitter at Million Dollar Geek. Listen to us on Spotify or Anchor.fm. Totally free at From Under the Apron. Check us out on YouTube and smash that subscribe button and follow us on Instagram for more wrestling content. Hopefully you're reading the episode description. Send us a message or your favorite wrestling stories, either by email. It is from under the apron at gmail.com. Or click on the link if you want to leave us a voice message. Doesn't matter if you're trolling or want to promote your business. We will still air it. We have in the past. <laughs> we will have a link to all the matches on all the stuff we discussed. All the news and matches we talked about on this broadcast. Just in case you may want to see it for yourself. After that, scroll down some more, and it's the Q&A this week. This week's question is, did we miss a favorite match that turned into a real shoot fight? Um, if so, send us a message. Uh, tell us in the Q&A. Tell us which one we should talk about next. Um, yeah, that's about it. Thank you for listening to these awesome stories from Under the Apron. We will see you back here next time.